Why does the Great Salt Lake never laugh at our jokes? Why? Because it's not a fan of dry humor. That was terrible. (laughs) Sounds like your saline levels are a little too high. Don't be so salty. I guess the Great Salt Lake and I have a lot in common. I joke. But this week on State Street, we're talking about something vitally important to the iconic Great Salt Lake. Water. I'm Sage Miller. And I'm Sean Higgins. Last legislative session was dubbed the Year of Water. This year, it doesn't seem like lawmakers are going quite as hard on water, but it hasn't fallen completely to the shore side. Ah, I see what you did there. That was terrible. Who's salty now? You're listening to State Street. In case you're new to Utah, the state is in the midst of a mega drought. Things got bad last summer. According to the U.S. Drought Monitor, almost the entire state was considered to be in severe drought or worse in September. And over 56% of Utah was in extreme drought. But the good news is that this winter has been a great one. Anyone who's been here since about Thanksgiving will know the snow just won't stop. And it's cold as bones. Snow totals in many areas across Utah are over 150 percent of average for February, which is great considering 95 percent of the state's water supply comes from snowpack. Nice. Problem solved. Right? Why are you looking at me like that? Nah, dude, that's just not how the drought works. (laughs) It could take years to completely get out of a drought. So that means we'll need a few more years of crazy winters just to get back to normal? Or a lot more years. It's it's hard to know when a drought will end. Some research shows the West will likely be in a drought until about 2030. Mother Nature, you unpredictable mistress. But the House and the Senate Majority Caucuses dubbed last week Water Week, signaling that water is still a big focus for the 2023 session. We have several bills dealing with everything from how the state handles emergency water shortages to water-efficient landscaping to how the state uses groundwater. We mentioned earlier that we haven't seen the same earth-shattering changes to Utah water law that we saw in 2022, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. To help better understand this year's bills, I spoke with someone whose job it is to stay on top of all this water legislation. Emily Lewis is a lawyer who specializes in water policy here in Utah. Here's what she had to say about where Utah is at on navigating its water woes. So I am admittedly a water newbie. I've kind of been worried about the Great Salt Lake and the drought for some time now, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners have. Is fixing this problem a problem of political will or a problem of funding? That is a great question. Um, and I want to say real quickly, these are just my own opinions working in water and not any of my clients or, or any representations. Um, but I do think that one thing that's really important for the public to understand is that one, water is very complicated. That doesn't mean that that it's um, unsolvable or that you know we can't find great solutions, but I do think it's complicated and takes time. So while, you know, the 2023 legislative session is occurring right now and the bills that are on the docket are important to look at, they're also kind of part of a broader corpus of work that's happened uh, in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And my next question kind of refers directly to what's going on this year. 
Last year, the legislature passed dozens of bills relating to water. Many dealt with the dying Great Salt Lake in particular. How does this year's water legislation compare to last year's? Last year was definitely one of the bigger years for water in a long time. We had the passage of the Great Salt Lake Trust. We had HB 429, which was a bill that established uh, the Great Salt Lake Integrated Assessment. Just a really heavy year in 2022 for water. And so I think that this year, there's definitely a smaller slate of bills, but I think that's in response that we still kind of need some time to let the 22 legislation get kind of on its feet and working and not, um, you know, create duplicative or competing efforts for water. So I think needing to look at them in concert is really important. So you see this as more of a continuation and building off of the legislation that was passed in 2022 as opposed to starting from the ground floor again. Yeah. And to kind of get back to your initial question that started this, I do think there's a lot of political will to do things here in the state of Utah to kind of make a little bit more of a contemporary water policy platform. And so I think, you know, as I mentioned, water is complicated. It's okay to kind of go slow on some of these questions and tasks. And as long as we're kind of keeping the big picture in mind. I want to touch on the funding aspect a little bit. I I said I don't know much about water, but I I do know at the municipal level, at least cities and towns across Utah spend millions upon millions of dollars on their water systems each year. How big of a piece to the puzzle is the funding aspect in particular? So the legislature in the last couple of years has been very generous with funding. They've put millions of dollars in the secondary meters um, to try and kind of get our secondary or our outdoor water use in check. They've put tons of money into ag efficiency projects. And so I think that when you say funding, I think it's important to talk about kind of what piece of the funding are you talking about? You know, the revenue streams that water providers have, and then also funding for programs and incentives and, uh, you know, individual projects that those providers participate in. We all know Utah is trying to navigate this drought, Um, and a bill this year, SB 150, deals with emergency water shortages that doesn't include the drought. So what does this bill actually do, and and what is its purpose? One of the things that you need to keep in mind is that climate change is not just drought, but climate change is fires, and fires result in mudslides, and mudslides can take out an entire water treatment plant. And we could have potentially a a very large source of water go offline real quickly. And so potentially this bill might address situations like that. So you think this is an important conversation to have? Yeah, I think it's a realistic conversation to have. Um, I don't necessarily have a substantive opinion on how this bill has arranged the uses or how this bill addresses emergency water provisions. But I think that the most important thing we can do in a state is have order and certainty in our water. And we're going to do that by kind of having hard conversations now um, so that when hard times come, we we know what's going to happen. If you could sum up the focus of water in this year's session, last year was dubbed the the year of water. Is this the year of water 2.0? What would you call this session's water uh, bills in like a sentence? Hmm. I would say the sentence in 2023 would be keeping the momentum. I think it's really important that we continue to refine our water policy as we learn more and more about water. And I think a lot of the reflection of of these particular bills 
are, you know, learning where are the places that we can continue to make improvements and tweaks. There's a lot of public awareness of water, as there should be. And I think it's really important that as a community, we try and always engage in a discussion about water that's constructive and forward looking. And I really hope that we kind of continue that dialogue as we, you know, face some pretty hard conditions coming into the future. Emily Lewis, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. That was water lawyer Emily Lewis. If you really want to get into the weeds on water policy, you can check out her podcast. It's called Ripple Effect. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, what are Utah farmers doing to save water and keep their farms running? You're listening to State Street. Support for State Street comes from the Hinckley Report podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about the biggest political headlines in the Beehive State. Find new episodes of PBS Utah's The Hinckley Report every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to State Street. I'm Sean Higgins. And I'm Sage Miller. We know that around 85% of Utah's water supply goes to agriculture, and there's been a lot of heat on farmers when it comes to water conservation. Even though they use the biggest amount of water in the state, farmers are far from immune to the drought. Some have actually had to let their crops die because of weather and drought conditions. But agriculture does still take the biggest gulp of the state's water supply. Lawmakers are looking to dump funding into something called ag optimization. That's just a fancy word for updating a farm's infrastructure to save water. Governor Spencer Cox, who's actually a farmer himself, wants to fork over $500 million for it. And the legislature is on board, too. During a news conference to kick off Water Week, Republican lawmakers said they plan on spending that amount or more on different water conservation projects. Updating those farm systems can conserve a good amount of water. A study from Utah State University found farmers could reduce water loss by as much as 20 percent. And while that may not seem like a lot, every drop truly does count. But a lot more sciencey stuff goes into reducing water loss. The health of the soil also plays a role. Dirt don't hurt, am I right? Dirt don't hurt, especially healthy dirt. I got a chance to talk to a farmer who is already implementing some of those water-saving methods on his farm. Stan Jensen has about 120 cows, moo, on a farm in Centerfield, which is about a two-hour drive south of Salt Lake. So I'm uh, just parked out on the farm, uh, just next to the cows. I have beautiful, beautiful mountains in the background and... Nice winter fields in the foreground with the cows just hanging out and relaxing on a nice, warm, sunny winter day. Yeah, I grew up on this farm. I left the farm, got uh, an engineering degree, went and started working in engineering. Uh, you know, in there I got married and then I start, then we started having kids. And when I was working in engineering, I mean, it was a desk job. I was sitting there all day, I was stressed to the max. Uh, and I was traveling a lot, you know, uh, all over the United States, even, even a bit out of the country. And then one day I come home and I'm just like, wow, my, you know, at the time it was my little girl. She's growing up so fast and I'm not even here. I thought, you know what? I, I want to, like, I want to be there. I want to be there with my kids. I want, I want to raise them, you know, and be with them. And so I thought, you know what? I know just the thing. And so my wife and I talked about it and we just said, yeah, like we, we'd like to farm. 
And so then we decided to to give up a, a steady paycheck and and uh, working in the condition space to to coming back to the farm and in all of the uncertainties that come with that. But you know, on a, on a daily basis, my kids are with me. And you know, if if you run into me, more than likely there's going to be a kid tagging along. I can imagine that. That sounds really wholesome too. Um, tell me a little bit about your farm. Where is it at? What do you grow? Uh, how many acres is it? So we're just south of Centerfield, Utah. And for a lot of decades, we we grew fodder for feedlots, uh, mostly alfalfa and corn. Yeah. What was kind of the driving factor of knowing that you needed to make a change to your traditional alfalfa farm? For starters, I, I started reading, I read, I was given actually a book, uh, this, a good friend of mine, Jared Sorensen, he gave me this book and it's called The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs by Joel Soliton. And I read that book and that was really my introduction into what, into what I'd call almost like alternative farming, farming, which is, which is returning your farm to a, a different era where you weren't necessarily tied into the need for pesticides and chemical fertilizers and and a tremendous amount of petroleum to fuel your tractors and to where the food that you grew actually went to feed the community around you and all of this i was learning from jill salton and i was i was both severely impressed and inspired and i said that's what i want to do i want to create a polyculture i want to get rid of my dependence on all these out external inputs and then i want to produce food for my local community Alfalfa is a monocrop and monocrops are not good for the soil. So question number one, I asked myself is how do I get away from a monocrop? And the answer to that for me was cattle, you know, they want a variety of things to eat. And so they will support a polyculture in the field. What are some of those changes you kind of had to make to make your farm more water wise? That would be just starting to focus on introducing a polyculture because the more crops you have, the better they can utilize the water that's available because each one has its own ecological niche. Focusing on keeping the soil covered by grazing, when we graze, our goal is not to remove every plant right down to the stem and, and leave the soil bare, but rather to to use the cattle as as a management tool. So they'll go in, they eat, they eat 70% of what's there or 50% of what's there, but then the other 30 to 50%, they stomp onto the ground and that covers the soil, which in turn has several benefits because it, it protects the soil, shades the soil, feeds the fungus and bacteria in the soil and the earthworms in the soil. It also adds more organic matter to the soil. So you have better water retention because when the soil is bare, the moisture that's in the soil evaporates much quicker, especially if you have any kind of wind. And so it's this, it's a whole system where everything that we're doing little by little conserves every drop of water that is available. And when did you start transforming your farm? We first started uh, eliminating tillage in 2017. That's what, that was when we made our first kind of four way into, into no till. Then we brought cattle in 2019 and, and this is the first like big thing that we noticed 2019, we bring the cows on and we got these, uh, so we have this electric fence and we have these, uh, posts that you, they have a spike on the end, like a tent peg and you have to, you have to step them into the ground. They, they have a little place that you can step on them and you push them in the ground. And that first year and, and even into the second year, I mean, it was so challenging to push it into this rock hard soil. And then. 
this last year, we started to notice that our soil wasn't as hard. That the Even though it was dry, even though we're in the midst of this drought, we could still step on these posts and they would slide into the ground much easier. And to me, that was like, oh, it's working. We're making progress because healthy soil is light. It's loamy. It's not hard like a rock. And so that was kind of like, okay, check. We're, we're making progress. How did that feel after putting in like, all of the sweat equity and then to see some yield of result? It's validating, like the earth reaching back up to you and giving you a little bit of a high five, like way to go. Like we're, we're doing this together. And how have you seen kind of your water practices change um, as you continue to navigate a historic drought? Oh, it's uh, it, it's tough to be in a situation where you know there is no there is no right answer. No, no matter no matter what you do, you will lose. It, it's extremely humbling, and uh, and sometimes disconcerting, and, and you know sometimes causes a lot of anxiety to you know, I feel like you have this, this stewardship, you know, this, this dream of something that you want to accomplish and to understand that water is, is key. And in a historic drought like this, you will, there's nothing you can do to make ends meet. You will lose financially and your soil will lose because you're not giving it the water that it needs. And so it's, uh, it's rough. I don't, I don't know how else to put it other than to say, uh, I have been severely humbled over the last couple of years. Is there anything that gives you hope? Yeah, you know, I, I believe that that things always work out in the end one way or another. It's just being patient, uh, having faith, and, and just just keep at it because that's, that's you know, I mean, what, what else can you do, I guess? Uh, there's there's no reason to give up hope. It's just, it's <laughs> got to get better. Something will work out. Um, and my very last question is just, what is your message to people who say Utah's water problems are the problem of farmers? Before we throw blame around, we definitely want to make sure that we take the time to understand the issue as, as much as possible. I did not understand water until I came back and I actually got right in the middle of it as a farmer. And I was like, I was blown away how water works in Utah. And so we, we want to start from a point of trying to, of doing our absolute very best to understand why water is the way that it is, why it works the way that it does. And after we understand it, then we want to look at it and say, okay, how do we want to use water? We definitely need agriculture. We do not want to end up like the Romans, where you are dependent on importing your food from somewhere else. You know, as Utahns, we want to make sure that we can feed ourselves first, because that is security. And then after we can feed ourselves first, then sure, we can ask a lot of questions about how we may want to use the rest of that water. But let's start with how do we make sure that no matter what, we can produce enough food to feed ourselves here in Utah. That was farmer Stan Jensen, a local farmer here in Utah who has changed his farming practices to keep it alive. Water Week has come and gone. So what's today's lesson, kids? Number one, the legislature's water bills aren't as aggressive as they were last year. But our water lawyer friend Emily Lewis says that makes sense. They're building off the work from last year. No need to reinvent the wheel every session. And number two, agriculture uses most of the state's water. Stan Jensen is trying to make that more efficient on his farm. And the state is trying to help other farmers get on his level. There's a lot of science that does make it possible to improve water use in agriculture. 
we did see some movement on a few pieces of water legislation. The bill dealing with emergency water shortages discussed earlier in the episode is awaiting a House vote. That's the one that Emily Lewis mentioned that addresses how the state would react to something like a natural disaster taking out a water treatment plant. Another bill deals with water-wise landscaping. The state wants to help homeowners pay to remove their thirsty lawns and replace it with something like rock or bark or native plants that need less water, just literally anything that isn't grass. It allocates $10 million to the program. That bill is poised to pass the Senate. Republicans put forth 10 water bills they say are top priorities. So even if all of those are making those little tweaks, it actually adds up. Some other water measures haven't been so lucky. A Senate committee voted along party lines to hold a resolution that would create a target lake level for the Great Salt Lake. To be clear, the committee didn't kill it. They just voted to not forward it to the entire Senate. So it's kind of just stuck there and not doing anything right now. The resolution was sponsored by freshman Democratic Senator Nate Bluen. It would have created a non-binding lake level goal of 4,198 feet above sea level, or nine feet above where it currently stands now. That number might sound a little random, but it's actually the level scientists say is the lowest level the lake can be to support a healthy ecosystem. Senator Bluen, on the other hand, tweeted two simple words about his resolution. It's dead. Well, on that upbeat note, that does it for this episode of State Street. I'm Sean Higgins. And I'm Sage Miller. The show's executive producer is Caroline Ballard. Editing and production support comes from David Childs and KUER News Director Elaine Clark. Our digital team includes Renee Bright, Eleanor Gomberg, Raquel Davis, and Jim Hill, who is responsible for practically every KUER headline and State Street title you see. What a Gov wants, what a Gov needs, that was Jim. Seriously, a wizard. It's always a proud moment when Jim approves of one of the headlines you wrote. (laughs) State Street is a production of KUER. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It helps other people find State Street. See you next week. Water's not funny. It's the way of life. Uh... From KUER.